Let me uh, begin with a part of the actual scripture that we're going to be reading. We're going to be reading here out of Hebrews 11. Uh, it says, this is uh, Hebrews 11 verses 1 and 2. It says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Well, when Chris and I were, were dating, we were helping out at a, a youth group uh, at our old church, uh, and we had taken a bunch of these kids, about 15 of them, onto a missions trip to the Netherlands. So it was a se- over a series of years, we constantly were going back, and uh, the, the, the goal of ours was to uh, try to develop relationships with these kids. We ran a soccer camp and a basketball camp, and we did drills, and we shared the Word of God with them. Uh, and then a lot of it was just hanging out. Um, Dutch people just love, you know, they had no qualms. Like, they heard there were Americans, and they all would come to this place we were staying, and they would hang out on, they would just come into the room, they wouldn't knock. Uh, they just came in, they did whatever, but they were wonderful people. We had a great time with them. And one of the guys uh, that uh, really hung, hung out with us for, for those weeks that we were there, uh, his name was Georges. And Georges was, he was kind of your cool guy, if you will, uh, kind of had that swagger to him, uh, and we really liked him. He really was a nice guy, and pretty much anywhere we went, he came with us. So if, if we were, you know, going to go to a different part of the country, he said, I'll go with you guys. If we were walking into the city, he said, I'll, I'll go with you guys. And we really, we really liked Georges. So the one day we were doing a, a little event at the, at the place we were staying, and we started off with this, this little kind of uh, fun little intro game. Uh, and we had these two girls uh, sitting on these chairs um, in our uh, bench, and they had a blanket over it. And we said, George, what we want you to do is we want you to go up, and we want you to give these two girls your best pickup line. And we knew he, w- he would do this because, again, he was the cool guy. So he, he swaggered up. He went there, and the two girls were sitting there on the, on the bench, and... He was all, you could tell he was, he was set for this. And so he went to sit down in between these two girls and he put his arms out like this. And just as he went to sit down, the two girls stood up and George fell right through the middle because again, it was two chairs and not actually a bench. So the whole trick of this was to convince this guy that he was going to sit comfortably on a bench. Uh, and he fell through, and we all had a good laugh, and he was a, he was a good sport about it, right? But, but George had faith in that bench, that he was going to sit down, and that bench would be there, when in reality, it actually wasn't. And as we are starting to now wrap up the book of Hebrews, we have a few more weeks, we've got three more chapters here to go through, the, the author is kind of bringing this to a culminating point. He's been going through and saying, look, I, I've been telling you all of the ways of how Christ is better than anything you could ever hope or trust in or imagine. And last week, we ended with that idea where he says the righteous will live by faith. And that's what he's pushing through today that he's saying to these people, he says, listen, you guys have a hope, you have a certainty, you have a solid confidence in who Jesus Christ is, and in that faith, 
That is what is going to deliver you. Okay? So, so you can be certain that, that even if you weren't there and, and you didn't see God and, and create the world, and if, if you didn't see and witness the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can have full confidence in the life, death, and ministry of Jesus that, yes, he went into the grave and he came up three days later after being on the cross. You can be fully assured that where you are putting your faith is a solid foundation for salvation. And so as he's going to go through, he's again going to touch on all kinds of different people in these events to prove to them that, again, any thought of turning back to the old system, going back to the old covenant, going back to the law, is going to be foolish, that it is only through faith that we will ultimately find our salvation. So as we work through chapter 11 here, um, I'm not going to do a deep dive because there's so many different people that we have to hit. I'm just going to kind of scratch the surface of each one. Um, but there are five ideas that I want us to understand about our faith. Okay, five ideas. The object, the pleasure, the obedience, promise, and miracle of our faith. So I'll say that again for you. The object, the pleasure the obedience, the promise, and the miracle of our faith. So that's what we're going to take a look at as we go through. So we've already read verses 1 and 2, right? Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So now let's turn here to verse 3. He says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, none of us are that old that we were around for the creation of the world, okay? None of us were there. Now, as believers, we take the scriptures as God's word, and we take this to say, yes, that God spoke creation to existence, okay? But we take that on faith, because again, you and I were not there to see it. But I like how he adds in here, he says, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. He's directly contradicting many of the people of the Greek and Roman world and understanding that this idea, this world, had all of these atoms and particles that magically came together to create this massive explosion and the world was generated out of that, right? We call that the Big Bang Theory. So if we think that modern scientists have come up with this idea, that actually was an ancient idea that existed. And the author is saying, no, 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 guys, there was nothing. There was not a single particle, not a single atom. There was nothing that came together prior to the existence of God. God spoke, and then all of this emerged. And so what he's trying to say to us is, look, you guys need to make a decision here. Where are you going to place your faith? Are you going to put your faith, the object of your faith, in a sovereign and all-powerful God that created this universe? Or are you going to put your faith in random chance that these pieces of atoms came together 
to create the world and that life is now this haphazard existence that goes on. And so the author is trying to have us understand that we need to place our faith in God, that he is the hope, he is the certainty that we have. God is the object of our faith. Now, when I use that word God, I just want to clarify here, because so often in this world, so many people will use that term God as a very generic phrase that, yeah, God exists. But when I say God, please understand that I am talking not only about the God of this universe, that there is only one God that exists in the Trinity. We are talking about the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Israelites that came in the visible form of Jesus Christ. Okay, So when I say God, that is the God that I am referring to. Okay, So one, God is the object of our faith. So now we move on to verse 4. He says, By faith... Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commanded as a righteous, commended as a righteous man. And when God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For he was taken, he was commended at one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So we have two people here, both Abel and Enoch. Both of them are commended for their faith. Now, if you don't know the story, uh, Abel had a brother Cain and they both brought an offering before God. But it was Abel's offering that pleased God, not Cain's. And as a result of this, Cain got angry and he got mad at his brother and he got jealous and he killed him. And then we have Enoch, who is one of only two people in the Bible who does not actually see death, but is just taken up into heaven. Okay, But these two men are cited for what? For pleasing God. Why did they please God? Because see, both of these men walked with God. And they lived their lives for God. And they worshipped and they honored God. They were pleased in the object of their faith. And because they had a pleasure in God, God was then pleased with them. And so what was the result? Well, they're given the reward of that pleasure. They're given the reward of their faith. They're, they're given the ultimate, which is a place in the kingdom of heaven. A home for all of eternity is what these two men were given. Okay? So Enoch and Abel had a pleasure of their faith, which was focused on God. Now we come to verse 7. So 7 through 19 is one large chunk. So I'm going to paraphrase this for the sake of time today. Okay, so I'm just going to paraphrase uh, what's going on here. But in the first part, we have Noah. And if you don't know Noah's story, he is told by God that he is basically going to destroy this world, that it's become corrupt, it's become evil. And he says, I need you, Noah, to build an ark. 
And I am going to save mankind by placing you and your family on that ark. And then I'm going to flood the earth. And I'm going to deal with the sins of mankind. And then I'm basically going to start again through your line. And then he, he, he talks about Abraham. And Abraham was living in this area of Haran. And God comes to him and he says, Abraham, I want you to go to Canaan. I'm going to take you over to a place that you don't know, a place that's not yours, a place that, that doesn't have your family or your heritage. And I'm going to, to lead you into this promised land. And when I bring you over there, I'm going to bless the world through you. And I'm going to bless it through your son, Isaac. And I'm going to bless it through the rest of your family line. That through you, Abraham, salvation is going to come. And Abraham gets really old. And he's like 100 years old by the time his son is finally born. And then he has the son. And then God says to him, take your son, go up to the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And as Abraham gets up there and he's holding the knife, ready to slay his son, in Genesis 22, an angel steps in and says, Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son. Now in verse 7, it says, by faith, when Noah was warned about things had not seen, in holy fear, he built an ark. Both of these men had a holy fear of God. They understood the power and the majesty of who God was. And when God came to Noah and said, I'm going to flood this world and I need you to build a boat. I need you to build an ark that is 510 feet long and 50 feet high. Noah didn't say, God, what are you talking about? There's been no rain. Noah didn't turn to God and say, hey, God, don't you think that's a little excessive as a boat? No. When he was told, what did he do? He built the boat. And when God came to Abraham and said, I need you to sacrifice your son on the altar, he didn't turn around and say, God, don't you know that murder is wrong? He didn't turn around and say, God, what about the promises? Remember, you promised me this son, this one that took me 100 years to have? you're going to now ask me to kill this? God, what about your promise? No, neither of them questioned God. But what did they do? Out of faith, they obeyed God. So we need to understand that there's an obedience to our faith. So now we're going to come to verse 20. It says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, when he was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt 
and gave instructions about his bones. Okay, so, so this part in particular, again, if we don't really have any backstory, this just seems kind of like a random set of people that are being thrown out here. Okay, but first what we need to understand is that in biblical times, the oldest child was entitled to a double portion of the inheritance, right? So, so he basically got more than the other siblings, and he, he usually got the better blessing from the other siblings because the idea was is that the oldest child would be responsible for the rest of the family. So, so if dad passes away, it is now the oldest son's responsibility to t- take care of his mother, or, or, or if, if, if he has sisters and their husbands pass away, he would be responsible for taking care of them. So because of that, he was given an extra portion of the inheritance to be able to provide for those individuals. So that was the norm, that the oldest would get entitled to this inheritance. But here's what's interesting, that in all of these cases it would be the younger that would be blessed over the older. So Jacob, whose father was Isaac, whose grandfather was Abraham, remember, the lineage is going to pass through him. He actually deceives his father, and he tricks his older brother Esau into getting his inheritance. He actually puts on a costume as his father gets old and he pretends that he's hairy like his brother. Uh, And so when his dad comes, he's like, well, you feel like Esau and you smell like Esau and you brought me food like Esau. I guess you must be Esau. And then he blesses him. So he literally cons his father and he cons his brother into getting this blessing. And then Joseph would have a bunch of sons. And the oldest of Joseph's sons was Reuben. And then the next one after Reuben was Simeon. Now, Reuben ends up actually sleeping with his father's concubine. And Simeon would engage in an act of vengeful murder for the rape of his sister. So the two oldest boys cause this act of sin that's going to cause them to lose this inheritance from their father. And Joseph, who is actually number 11 out of 12, okay, so so he's way down at the bottom, he's going to be favored over his 11 brothers. His father, Jacob, is going to give him the multicolored coat, and he's really going to lavish it. Well, his brothers get jealous at him, And when he comes out to visit them, they basically sell him off into slavery. He goes down to Egypt, where while he's in Egypt, God gives him favor and basically raises him to the second in command of the Egyptian empire. And then when there is a famine that exists up in Canaan, the land of Israel, his brothers will go down seeking food that Joseph has been preparing for and will take care of his brothers and his family. Now, again, what's interesting here is that each one, by faith, made a decision of blessing. Again, Isaac had no right to that blessing. But in Genesis 25, God tells him, or should say, God tells 
his father, the older will serve the younger. God made that promise to Isaac. And when Jacob, who was the con man, is now going to bless his children, he takes Joseph and he says, I'm going to give you the special blessing. But actually, I'm not actually going to give it to you, but I'm going to give it to your two children that were born to you in Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim. And as he goes to bless them, he puts his right hand, which normally would be on the older one, and he switches it to the younger, and he puts it like this. And, and, and Joseph says, Dad, what are you doing? You made a mistake. And he actually takes his hands and he puts them right. And he says, no, son, this is the way that it's to be. Now, we are not told into Scripture why that decision was made of why he would bless them that way. But what we know is by faith he made that decision. And then it says, what does he do? He worships upon his staff. And when Joseph is there in Egypt and his brothers come down, Joseph has every right to be angry with his brothers. Remember me? Remember the guy that you sold into slavery because you hated me because my father loved me? Well, now the tables have turned, guys. Now I'm going to enslave you. That's what Joseph could have done. But instead, what did Joseph choose to do? He embraced his brothers and he brought them down and he cared for them. And as he was dying, he said, guys, my, my father and my, my grandfather, their bones are all buried back in Israel, back in the promised land. I want you to be sure that when I die and God brings you back out of this Egyptian captivity, I want you to take my bones back. I want you to bury me in the proper place. See, all of these individuals made a decision with a promise in mind. They, they didn't think about what had happened or what was going on, but they, they thought about the promise of God and they looked forward into the future and said, that is what I am going to make a decision on. On the promised future seed that was going to come through Abraham that would eventually emerge as Jesus Christ. So there is a remembrance about the promise of our faith. And now we come to the last portion, which is 23 to 38. Now I'm actually going to kind of chunk this a little bit. Okay, but 28 to 30, 38 is all one big section, but I'm just going to break it down to explain it a little bit, and then I'll, I'll do the whole section together. Okay, so verse 23. It says, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because he saw that he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. 
By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. And by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. And by faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. So as, as Joseph has, has, has provided for his family in Egypt, eventually those that knew Joseph would die off and new pharaohs would emerge and they saw the rising number of Israelites and they said, there's too many, we must enslave them. And they cried out to God and God said, I will bring you a deliverer and his name is Moses. And when Moses was a baby, the, he catches wind that... that that there's this child and he wants all, there's too many of these kids and, and he wants all of these kids dead. And his parents, refusing to allow their child to be killed, put him in a basket and push him down the river, who was then found by Pharaoh's daughter and then taken in to Pharaoh's home and raised as one of Pharaoh's own children. But then after a while, he steps back and he says, not anymore. These are my people. These are the people that God had called me to. And so he defies Pharaoh and says, you need to let God's people go. And all of these plagues come. And Moses, on the night of Passover, is told to sacrifice a lamb and, and put the blood over the door and the angel would pass over their house and spare the children in those homes. And his Pharaoh's firstborn child would die. And the wailing of all of those who had lost children in Egypt, Pharaoh would allow them to, to leave. And as they left, Pharaoh then would change his mind and chase after. And as they stood with their backs up against the Red Sea, God would part the waters. They would walk through. And as Pharaoh's army followed, the waters would come crashing down upon them. And God's people were saved. So now after they've crossed the Red Sea, they spend this time wandering in the desert. And then God says, I'm going to now bring you back into the promised land. And Moses dies and Joshua takes over. So now we come to verse 30. By the faith, the walls of Jericho fell, and the people had marched around them for seven days. And by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So Jericho was this massive city that existed on the other side of the river. And as they, they crossed over the Jordan River, God had said, this is your promised land, Joshua. You are to lead my people. You are, you are to reconquer this land. And so they start with this massive city that had walls that were about 20 to 25 feet high in the air. Walls that were five foot thick. And God said, you are going to take this city. And the way that you are going to take this city, Joshua, is by marching around it for seven days. And after seven days on that seventh day, you will march seven times around that city. And then at the command, they would blow the trumpets and they would shout. And at that sound, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down 
and God's people would storm in and capture that city and spare Rahab the prostitute for what she did by honoring those spies of Joshua. And now we're going to come to verse 32. Now, I'm going to read 32 to 38 in a little bit of a dramatic voice. Okay? I have no idea if this is the way it was originally to be read. But for, for our own purpose and personal understanding, I think it'll make more sense when I read it that way. Okay? So, again, he's talking about this whole idea of faith. right? He's just talked about Abel and Enoch, and he's talked about Noah and Abraham, and he's gone through this whole story of, of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and, and Moses and crossing the Red Sea and Joshua coming through and, and, and having this amazing miracle of these walls tumbling down. And then he says in verse 32, and he says, What more shall I say? Do I have not time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered the kingdoms? They administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouth of lions, who quenched the fury of the flames, who escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and whose power became powerful in battle, who rooted foreign enemies. And women, women received back from the dead. They, 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 they raised they saw them, them raised to life again. And then others were tortured and they refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. And some faced jeers and flogging and others were, were still in chains and were imprisoned and then they were stoned. Wait, and then they were sold in two and they were put to death by the sword? They went about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated? The world was not worthy of them, and they wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the... Wait, wait a minute. What just happened there? We, we just went, this idea that people were spared by the mouth of lions and from the fury of flames, and, and God brought them and conquered the land, and then all of a sudden we're like, wait, people are now being tortured and killed and being imprisoned? I, I don't understand. This doesn't seem to match up here. What, what is going on in the scriptures? Well, remember what I said here. 24 to 38 is one large chunk of information. Okay? So, when we go back to Moses being put into a basket, being picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, and then after she's picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, they say, go get me a Hebrew slave who turns out to be Moses' own mother. And they give, her they give Moses back to her mother and say, I need you to nurse this child until he's ready. Then he can come be part of Pharaoh's army. That is a miracle, right? And then when Moses grows up and he denies this Egyptian upbringing, for the sake of his people, and he leads them through uh, the, the, the plagues, and, and then they get to the Red Sea, and then God parts the Red Sea, and the waters come crashing down upon the Egyptian army. That is a miracle of God. And then as they walk around the, the city walls, I mean, think about how much easier it would be to demolish something that all we had to do was shout out in the name of the Lord and buildings would come crashing down. That is a miracle. 
And it is a miracle that the only one in that city was the prostitute. And what does she say? Here's what Rahab said in Joshua chapter 2. She said, I know that the Lord has given me this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. The Lord your God is God in heaven, above and on the earth below. The woman full of sin was the one who understood the Almighty God. That is a miracle. The miracles, again, of how God defeated them and uh, defeated the enemies. The miracle of how God gave them the promised land. The miracle of of being free from the lion's mouth and and the, the blazing furnace. Again, all of those are miracles. But why... Why is the idea of people being tortured and killed and imprisoned for their faith in this section? Because when I talk about a miracle, I think what is probably the biggest miracle is the fact that in the face of struggle and in hardship and in the face of the loss of their lives, these individuals refused to deny the Lord. That they were willing to deny the the, the fleshly pleasures of this world for the sake of their spiritual joy in Christ. I think that, above all, is the greatest miracle when somebody is willing to stand for Christ and said, if you need to put a sword to my throat, then you do it, but I will not deny the saving power of Jesus Christ. So there is the miracles of our faith. And as a result, how does he end all of this? Verse 39 and 40, he says, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us will they be made perfect. Now it's really interesting that it says they were all commended for their faith, but they didn't get what was promised to them. Wait, wait a minute, I, I thought that was the point of our faith. Aren't we supposed to get what is promised to us? Well, yes, what, what the author is trying to say to them, he says, look, all these people in the Old Testament, all these people in the past, they didn't get to see the fulfillment of the promise, which was the seed of Jesus Christ. They all passed away before Jesus was born. But you know what? They lived in faith, looking forward to the promise that was to come and had trust in God that he would make good on that promise. And he said, all of the people in the New Testament now have the privilege of looking back at the promise and looking back at the birth of Jesus Christ and saying, that was the promise that was given to me. So what he's trying to do, he's saying, look, I am melding the story of the old and the new together. 
The past and the present is coming together to show you the unfolding of God's miraculous story. There's a reason why we just went through and talked about all of these things in their past and how Christ is better than, than the sacrifice in the tabernacle, how he's, how he's better than the prophets and he's better than the angels and, and he's the better high priest. Because he's saying, look, that old part of your story is just as important in the new part of your story. But all of those parts of the story culminate in one single factor, and that is Jesus Christ. That is where the glory of all of this happens. So to kind of wrap up all of this together and, and say we have these five different parts, but what does that mean for me? Again, he's trying to have them understand, I know you're facing hardship. I know you're struggling. I know you want to walk away. I've been telling you not to do it. But if you're willing to say, okay, okay, author, okay, God, okay, Adam, how do I, how do I walk the straight and narrow then? You need to tell me, what do I need to do? And he says, it's faith in Christ. It is by faith. 24 times in chapter 11, he says, by faith, by faith, by faith. Because that is how the people in the old walked, and that is how the people in the present walk, and that is how the people in the future will walk. We will walk by faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, guys, when we use the word faith, it is not a hope this works out. This is a solid guarantee that can be trusted. And so I have a confidence in the object of my faith, which is Jesus Christ. This is not sinking sand that when the waves come is going to knock this house over. Christ is built on the solid rock. I have a pleasure of my faith because I understand who God is. Not only do I understand the all-powerful and almighty God, but I also understand the love and care and grace and mercy of God. Just like, when those, just like when they cried out in the desert, God heard their cry and delivered them. That when we go through trials and difficulty, that when you raise your voice to the heavens and say, God, where are you? God is there and he's watching over you and he loves you and he cares for you. That is the pleasure that I have in that type of God. He is not aloof. He has not created the world and walked away. He is not vengeful. He is not out to destroy me. No, God is out to save you. And I have that promise. That when Christ went to the cross and said, it is finished, that is the solid promise that I have. That one day I will stand before my heavenly Father and I will rejoice in the throne room of heaven. And because I understand that, because I know the object of my faith is Christ, I am pleased in Christ, and I know the promise of Christ, I can have a radical obedience to who Christ is. So when, when God calls me to do something I don't understand, I don't have to question what God is doing. I just do it. Re remember remember the, the movie, The Karate Kid? Remember that? Paint the fence, sand the boards, wax on, wax off. 
And after a while, Daniel gets angry and he thinks he's getting scammed by Mr. Miyagi. And he basically confronts him and Mr. Miyagi's like, show me what you've been doing. And he starts doing all the moves and he realizes what he's been doing all along is that he's been training him in the art of karate. And that's the same thing with our radical obedience. We don't always know what God is doing in our lives. But we are called to obey. But understand that if you don't understand, God knows what he's doing. And that's all we need to know. And when we are willing to live a life of radical obedience, trust me, guys, you will see the miracle of your faith. You will see God come through in ways that you never would have thought, that will stop you in your tracks, that will cause you to get on your knees and worship him. If I was to just give an open share time right now and say, somebody come up here and share with me the miracle of God did in your lives, I, we, we could be here all night where you'd say, you know, one time this happened and one time I was in this and one time, and we would do this again and again and again and again and again and again because God shows up in miraculous ways. And I'll tell you what, that some of the most times that he shows up is some of our most difficult and hardest moments. So again, when you think God is not there, understand he is waiting to show you that miracle. And when it does, you will stand in all of your Savior and you will worship him. So if I have a proper faith in Christ, then what do I have? I have a Savior that is pleased with me. And if my Savior is pleased with me, then I am given that reward of salvation and eternity. That is the all-encompassing understanding of our faith. Let's pray. Lord, you make it sound so easy. All you're asking is, is for us to believe. I don't have to work. I, I don't have to continually obey a certain set of rules. I, I don't have to do all of these other externals. Because we can't. We can't uphold your law. We can't uphold your statutes. We, we can't do anything, God. But it is only through your power and grace, Father, that we are able to do anything. And Lord, I thank you that a faith in you is never lost. That a faith in you is never one that has to worry or fret because, God, you are in control and you've already told us how much you love us by sending your son to the cross. Let us continually see that faith. Let us continually understand that faith and then live out that faith in radical obedience to do so that not only we and I can see the miracle of who you are, but the unbelieving world, God, would see your miraculous work and want to call you Lord and Savior as well. Lord, we, we again have sports camp coming up and we have 170 kids showing up. Lord, give us the miracles of faith to see these kids and these families who don't know you to at the end of this give their lives to you that we may all rejoice in heaven one day. Amen.